0: So this morning, we are starting a new series uh, called Sharing Life. And we are following the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, We've got a lot to learn from this book about mission in a challenging cultural context. About how we share lives together, how we share life with those around us. And I'm excited to see what we'll learn to enable us to grow together as disciples and what we put into practice as we engage in mission with our culture today. Uh, this letter, 1 Corinthians, is one of several letters that Paul wrote to the church that he founded in Corinth on his second missionary journey. Uh, and I can see there are Bibles. If you need a Bible, just wave a hand. The hosting team have just got some there. Or turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in your um, If you've got an electronic version with you. Uh, We'll be um, reading the passage just a little bit later on. I'm just going to set the context now uh, for this church in Corinth. So we find the description of what happens uh, when Paul arrives in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, uh, verses 1 to 18. Uh, He's on a journey through Greece And then uh, he comes to this place called Corinth from Athens. Uh, And when he arrives in Corinth, he starts, as is his usual practice, uh, to speak in the synagogue uh, with the Jewish people who were already worshipping there. And he starts with the, the, the Jewish people, In the synagogue, and uh, when they start to object to what he's saying and strongly object to the extent that uh, Luke records in Acts that they become abusive, uh, he goes next door and he uh, and he starts to speak to the Gentiles, which actually was his original call, uh, was to the Gentile people. But even with that being Paul's original call and the abuse that he received uh, in the synagogue, uh, Luke records that Crispus, who was the synagogue leader, and the whole of his household believed. And as well as them, many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized. So just a, a brief comment to say there that Paul is Speaking in the synagogue, then he moves next door to another place of gathering where he can uh, preach the good news. Uh, But the gospel is also spreading through households. In the reading that we're about to read, we'll see uh, Chloe's household is mentioned, also the household of Stephanus, um, and then in Acts 18, the household of Crispus. So there's that mixture going on of a church that is starting around gatherings to a center where Paul is preaching and in households all over the city. When Paul arrives in Corinth, he uh, joins Aquila and Priscilla who are Jewish people who've had to leave Rome because Claudius, the emperor at that time, have ex- has expelled uh, Jews from Rome. And they've arrived in Corinth, and they're tent makers. And Paul is also a tent maker. So with those two links of tent making and Jewish heritage, uh, they form uh, a tent making team. Uh, and he's there tent-making with Aquila and Priscilla, and it's clear that also Aquila and Priscilla come to faith in Jesus, because at the end of Acts, uh, sorry, at the end of Corinthians, there is a greeting from Paul, from Priscilla and Aquila and the church that meet in their household. It's a very challenging situation for Paul in Corinth, Paul himself says this in chapter 2 of his letter of 1 Corinthians. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. And Luke in Acts 11 speaks of a dream that Paul has where God puts courage in him. Stay firm, Paul, even in this challenging situation. And he carries on staying and speaking there and living there for a year and a half. And it becomes a very fruitful time as more and more people in the church in Corinth come to faith. Why was it so challenging for Paul? Well, according to David Pryor, up to that point, Paul had seen the gospel impact uh, churches in the area around Achaia, which is Greece, starting in... um, smaller and medium-sized cities. Corinth easily represented the largest city that he'd engaged with so far, around about a quarter of a million people there. And added to that, Corinth was a real melting pot of different people groups, uh, partly because it was such an important seaport and trading route. Uh, Let's have a look at the location of uh, Corinth. Uh, You can uh, see there, But it is placed on an isthmus uh, linking to mainland Greece uh, with Athens on the right-hand side. So you can see that uh, Paul, who's traveled down from Thessaloniki through to Athens and then across to Corinth, um, the position of Corinth is a a really key seaport and trading route. And uh, the founding of Corinth uh, in the 2nd century BC uh, was that it was uh, a prosperous centre of trade and commerce, uh, but also as a seaport, it had its share of immoral behaviour. And within its history, it had temples to Aphrodite and to Apollo, Apollo and they were both those both those uh, cults were dedicated to glorifying sex. It was a prominent, leading Greek city that defied Rome, and that resulted in its destruction. Because uh, cities that defied Rome in that time did find themselves uh, having to uh, counter uh, the might of the Roman uh, Empire and the Roman army. And they, they were completely flattened. So Corinth ceased to be. But then Julius Caesar, as he developed the Empire of Rome again, from uh, BC 46, rebooted Corinth as a Roman colony. So he resettled it with army veterans. He gave them land in that place. And he resettled it because of its strategic position as a seaport. So by Paul's time in the middle of the first century, Corinth was a rough, tough place settled by Roman army veterans. It was a little Rome. That's what the colonies did. Uh, but it was also known for its seaport-like behavior. We're before the nine o'clock watershed, so I won't get into any more further detail on that. And it was clearly a very violent place, as the account in Acts 18 uh, outlines. Paul, with the significant encouragement of Aquila and Priscilla, who basically form a team with him, and then... Further, when Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia with a gift and encouragement, which releases Paul to be able to preach all the time, that team of five share life together. And they see firsthand the gospel flourishing there, people coming to faith in Jesus, the church growing. Paul then moves on in his missionary journey. He heads off across the sea towards Ephesus. And he leaves the church in Corinth to develop. And then he hears reports that all is not well in the church in Corinth. It was the very first fully messy church. Well, not the very first. All churches planted have that messiness going on but it seems that Corinth had a huge level of messiness Uh, this is Kenneth Bailey's description of the church in Corinth they were getting drunk at holy communion and shouting insults at each other one of them was sleeping with his mother-in-law the prophets and preachers were all talking at once in their worship services and some of the women were chatting and not listening to anyone they had split into factions, and some thought that Polish language was more important than historical realities like the cross. Others denied the resurrection, yet Paul called them saints. It's remarkable, isn't it? Tell you what, there was a lot of, a lot of interest in that church, wasn't there? As I read that, you'd think, oh, I'd quite like to have been a fly on the wall in that church. So much going on. So much going on. But Paul hears all this through a report and uh, is, right, I need to address this. I need to address this. Uh, he writes them actually several letters, uh, and this is uh, the one that we call 1 Corinthians is likely to be the second or third one that he writes to them. Uh, and the, but this letter and 2 Corinthians are the ones that we've got preserved to, to hear, but let me just um, read you that description again from Kenneth Bailey, because then I'm going to read you the greeting of Paul's opening words, and, and while I have encouraged you to look this up in the Bible, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to be reading uh, parts of it as we go through, while I've encouraged you to look that up, I would also encourage you to simply sit and listen to this. Because that's how it would have been heard. A letter arriving wasn't then dis- copied out and distributed or photocopied or emailed. It was a listening culture. It was an oral culture. So this, this letter would have been read to the people of Corinth. Can you imagine gathering? If you know that your church is like this and has been doing this sort of behavior and you're getting a letter from your founder, from your founder. Can you imagine sitting and listening, that expectation when you know of all the dissension that's been going on, all the ethical, moral problems going on, all the factions, all the disagreements, all the basic rowdiness that we hear going on in their worship services. You hear there's a letter come from Paul. This is his opening words to them. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in one way, that's quite a straightforward letter opening for that time. But when you think of what the church had been engaged with and what the church had been engaged in, isn't that extraordinary that that is how Paul greets them? He reminds them of his calling to be an apostle, and he mentions he mentioned Sosthenes, who uh, may well be the person mentioned in Acts 18, who uh, and later on in this letter, who was one of the first households that came to faith, was the first household that came to faith in Corinth. If it was Sosthenes, then it makes quite a lot of sense for Paul to include his name in the letter because that person was known to the people in Corinth and also Sosthenes knew the church situation there. But Paul is saying you're sanctified, you're holy. He's calling them up into what Christ has done for them. And he's saying that specifically to the church in Corinth, but he's also saying, and this letter is for everyone everywhere, the NIV says who's, called, who's calling on the name of the Lord. In fact, it should say, together with all those who are called by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not so much that we're calling out to God, it's that, we ha- it's that God has called us. God has called us. So this is a letter not simply for the people in Corinth. It's a letter for everyone everywhere who's been called by God. That means if you're following Jesus here today, here and now in this church, it's a letter for us. It's a letter for us. Verse three, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at these two words, grace. Grace, from the, uh, Hebrew, based on the Hebrew, the understanding of it from heseth, grace has to do with the covenant faithfulness that expresses itself in mighty acts in history to save, at grace, the word grace was very close to the Greek word for hail, greeting, hello, and uh, Paul, by using the word caris, is um, kind of reminding the church in Corinth of there is a Greek group of people in that church. He's deliberately using that word. And then the next word, peace, which links to the word shalom from Hebrew, refers to the comprehensive reconciling peace that flows from the grace of God. And shalom was a particularly Hebrew word, and that would be very much something that the Jewish people understood in terms of a greeting. Greek people saying, hello. Jewish people saying, peace. So that combination of those words, grace and peace, is Paul bringing in right at the beginning of his letter a word of reconciliation to both sides, Greek and Jew, in that church in Corinth. But those two concepts are the overarching theme of 1 Corinthians. Grace that has to do with God's covenant faithfulness that expresses itself in God's mighty acts in histories to save Preeminently with Jesus' death on the cross. And then from that, peace, referring to that comprehensive, reconciling peace that flows from the grace of God. It is through grace that deep peace is possible. I'll repeat that. It is through grace that deep peace is possible. Grace and peace flow to us from our Father God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is with that in mind that Paul continues in his letter. Uh, Let's uh, read the uh, verses 4 to 9, this thanksgiving that Paul then continues with. And again, listen to this from the context of you might have been feeling slightly nervous (laughs) as the church in Corinth. What is Paul going to say next? But building on that thought that it is through grace that deep peace is possible, this is what Paul says next. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him... You have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's extraordinary in the light of what Paul has heard and then what follows is that Paul starts with thanksgiving for the church in Corinth. There must have been a huge surprise for the people sitting there, this grace of thanksgiving. And Paul is seeing God's grace at work in them. He affirms their uh, gifts of speech and knowledge. He He sees that as a confirmation of the testimony that him and the team have brought to them. He says you don't lack any spiritual gift. But it's all because of Christ. It's all because of being in Christ. You have life to live in the present, arising from what Paul and all those people have shared with them. And this life is given to them in Christ Jesus. And you have life with the promise of being kept firm to the end, completely blameless. God is faithful. This is a huge word of grace right at the start from Paul. The partnership that there is in our grace is that it all comes from God. And that grace ensures for us an enriched present as well as a certain and sure future. An enriched present as well as a certain and sure future. So it's with that in mind that Paul then moves on to talk of the first thing that he is really concerned about, the thing that he wants to address. Now, there are a number of things through this letter that he wants to address, but the first thing is divisions. He's heard from Chloe's household that there are divisions going on among the church in Corinth. And I'm going to read uh, verses 10 to 17. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there will be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes. I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What were these divisions that were causing so much strife? Well, commentators have different views. For example... Um, some uh, think that the, there are factions that were according to kind of um, following different personalities. So some were saying, well, I follow Paul as the founder, people harking back to the good old days. Others saying, well, I'm following Paul, uh, Apollos. He was a real intellectual. He really understood the background the nuts and bolts of the Hebrew faith. And, and then he brought that up to date into Christianity. So that's people being seduced by the elitism of knowledge Others saying I follow Sefas as representing that traditional Jewish heritage of the faith. And then people moving more into legalism at that point. And then the people saying I follow Christ, well, I don't need any of that. I'm just going for Christ. And that tends to speak of a people moving towards a kind of super spirituality. So it could have been around factions, kind of party politics there. Or it could be divisions drawn on ethnic lines. Uh, Paul was a Roman citizen. Apollos was a Greek. Cephas represented the Jewish tradition. And again, Christ, people saying, I follow Christ, saying, well, I'm distinct from all of that. I'm different from all of that. So being different becomes the leading beat. What is clear... About these divisions is that they were causing the church in Corinth significant fallout, dissension, and strife. Uh, to the extent that you can see with the baptism side of it, there was a there was clearly people going, "Well, who dunked you?" You know, if you were baptized by Paul, then it was a better baptism by so and so. It was a better bapti- I mean, they're ridiculous, isn't it? But that's what was going on. What about us today? Do we kind of adhere to particular podcasts and we say, that's the, that's the one I'm following. That's the person I'm following. Do we adhere to particular ways of being church or particular outworkings of being church and start to say, well, that's my way. So we can all learn from different ways. It's when it becomes my way. That word there, I, is so powerful, isn't it? I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, well, I follow Christ. I, 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 I. Breeding division and strife. Rather than the church sharing life together and sharing life with those around them, these dissensions had completely derailed them from the reality that the preeminent priority is that it is God who shared his life with them and did that in the most radical way with Jesus on the cross. Paul jumps from this description of I follow, I follow to these questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the you there is plural. It's significant. It's moving from the I to the you. And he's saying, this is what God has done for you. Christ has been crucified on the cross. It all comes back to the cross. And that's what next week's sermon will focus on, the wisdom and power of God in the cross. And that wisdom revealed through the spirit. Spiritual wisdom found in the cross. So I won't preach next week's sermon. You can read ahead into chapter two. For now, all I want to say is that what I see is that it's laying down our own agendas, our party politics, our preferences, our practices, and coming back to the cross. That's the place of complete surrender and of complete grace. It's coming back to what God has done for us. In my preparation for this morning... I was struck by reading that the word that Paul uses for I appeal, where he starts this addressing of the division, he says, I appeal, literally, I entreat you, brothers and sisters. That that word is the same word that is used in Luke 15 in the parable of the prodigal son of the father going to the older brother to plead with him to join the party that the father has thrown for the younger son who's come back from a life of dissident living, who's squandered all his wealth on prostitutes and has come back to the father and the father has spread his arms open wide. He's run towards the younger son and the younger son has thrown himself on his father's mercy and grace. And the older brother hearing in the field, the sound of party, Kicks off. He's absolutely furious. And the father leaves the party and he goes to the older brother and he pleads with the older brother. It's the same word there, that plead as I appeal to you, I plead with you, says Paul to these people. The father going to the older brother to plead with him to come and join the party. And the visual image in my mind is of the older brother standing with his arms folded, taking his position on the outside, justifying all he has done to the father. I never left you. I've never gone off and done my own thing. And the father says to him, son, all I have is yours. You've, You've got it all. But this son has come back. Come and rejoice with me. Come and rejoice with us. The older brother doesn't recognize the grace that the younger brother is receiving. This is how Charlie McAfee uh, visualizes the grace that the younger brother is receiving. The younger brother overwhelmed by the grace. ...of the Father. In my mind, I, my visual picture of the two brothers... ...is the, the older brother standing with his arms folded outside... ...and the younger brother coming on his knees... ...and falling, falling down on his knees before the Father. But I think how Charlie Mackersy portrays that so powerfully brings in the grace that it's the running father it's the father who runs to the younger son and envelops him puts that robe on his shoulders puts a ring on his finger that re-establishes him right back into the family The work of grace that Christ has won for us on the cross. You see, that's why Paul can state with absolute sincerity his thanksgiving that we read in verses four to nine. His thanksgiving is authentic no matter what disagreements, hugely questionable life choices they'd made. Actions of disdain, of rich to poor, being puffed up in knowledge and super spiritual gifts, all of that with the church in Corinth. With all of that going on, Paul authentically gives thanks for them because the grace of God In the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ means that they are sanctified. They are holy. They will be found blameless, standing firm at the end. It's grace given in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul looks at the Corinthian church as it is in Christ before he looks at anything else that is true of the church. Regardless of all the ethical and theological failings that Paul found in the church in Corinth, he was confident that the Corinthians would stand guiltless and blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Corinthians may not be faithful, but God is. God is. What's our response to this in Cambridge We want to be sharing life with each other, with those around us. And we may be acutely aware as we listen of aspects in our own lives that we're not doing, stuff we're getting wrong. Perhaps even the denials, the divisions, the ethical failings, the theological lapses, the taking a position. I do this. But that misses the preeminent first reality that God shares his life with us. And we, sanctified, made holy by the cross of Christ, get to share our lives with him. We are in Christ, participating in God's plans. Is our posture like the older brother, standing on the outside, arms folded, Or is it like the younger brother throwing himself into the arms of grace of the Father? Do we kneel at the foot of the cross where our Lord Jesus Christ won for us? The reality that God looks on us as blameless. And then it's from that place of grace that we get to live out the lives that God calls us into. What is God saying to us through this opening, this introduction? Live from a place of grace. Live from a place of grace. It's so easy for us to focus on all the things we're either not doing or the things that we're getting wrong. But what Paul calls the people in Corinth up to and into is living from a place of what God in Jesus has already won for them. And his thanksgiving for the church in Corinth is entirely authentic because they are in Christ. You know, church, we'd be so dangerous if we lived completely out of that place of grace. Dangerous to whom? We'd be dangerous to the enemy. living from this place of confidence in who God has made us to be in Christ. As we move into our time of response... I want to encourage us to do two things. And Matt and the band, I'd like to invite you up as we get ready for our response. Living this place of grace can only be done in community. This was a letter written to a community, sitting, listening in community. Paul was calling them out, calling this out of them, that they are already in Christ. So, I want to ask you that during this week, in your communities, in your households, you read these verses to each other verses four to nine. Call it out of each other who you are in Christ. Do it in family times, around meals, do it in your community times. If like me, you live on your own, go and find some people, go and have that spoken back into you and you speak it back. Let's give thanks for each other as we go through this week of what Christ has done for us. So let's read verses four and to nine over each other and call it out of each other. But in this moment, the other response that I want us to bring now is that we actively lay aside our own agendas, our own positions, our own preferred ways of doing things, and come back to the cross and surrender to Jesus, the one who has won for us that place of grace before the Father in the father's arms let's take a moment in the quiet to do that